0: Hi, everyone. My name is Miles and I serve as the Assistant Director for Leadership in the Center for Student Engagement at George Washington University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership Podcast, presented by the Student Leadership Program, Knowledge Community, This episode serves as the conclusion to our six part series on John Dugan's new book and we'll wrap up our previous conversations. So my guest today is Dr. John Dugan. John is a professor in the higher education program at Loyola University Chicago. Prior to his academic appointment, he worked in administrative positions in higher education at the University of Maryland and at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. John serves as the principal investigator for the multi-institutional study of leadership and relevant to our discussion here today, John is the author of the recently released book, Leadership Theory, Cultivating
1: Critical Perspectives. Welcome, John. Hey, Miles. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, I can't believe it's our last session.
0: (laughs) I know. I know. Here we are. Here we are at the end. Uh, We made it, Um, and uh, we made it through the the logistical challenge of scheduling a lot of people, uh, which was probably the hardest part of this whole thing. So uh, made it over that hump, and here we are at the end.
1: I'm guessing you're probably going to be excited to have some conversations with people other than me <laughs> moving forward there you go <laughs> bringing that up again just for anyone who's listening this
0: is not the first time that John has made that comment I just want everyone to know one, that joke was unnecessary and not fresh it was both of those things <laughs> I'll, I'll
1: take the feedback around it not being fresh and <laughs> that as <is> fair <laughs>
0: Still not listening to the not necessary part. Okay, great. So, um, well, let's get started. So, I wanted to to um, re- reflect back a little bit. So, I recently reread the first couple of chapters of the book, and something you said in the in the preface that I wanted to to read out here. We default to the assumption of shared understanding, despite clear evidence that we may be operating from different conceptualizations altogether. That reminded me of a quote uh, that I stumbled upon a couple of years ago from a book by the, by Robert Put- Putnam called Our Kids, um, which is a narrative-based study of economic inequality in the United States. And one of their respondents, uh, one of their, is a study of folks who identified as working class, was quoted as saying, your then wasn't my then, and your now isn't even my vow. And that, that sentiment and that idea stuck with me for a long time. So I suppose I wonder, how do we as practitioners overcome this default of shared assumptions and teach our students to do the same?
1: I think that's a great question, and I love that quote. That quote um, is one I'm going to hold on to because I think it captures not just the fact that we have different assumptions, but the real reality of you know, I hear that quote and I hear a little bit of pain underneath it mm-hmm. around the presumption of a shared a, a set of understandings um, and how privileged that is. And so, um, you know, that's my projection onto it. But um, here's where, to answer your question, I would say. I would say that it is natural, I think, particularly with these complex topics, and I don't think it's just leadership. I think if you ask someone about other subject matters like identity or, even things like joy or happiness, people are going to have different sets of assumptions that inform that work. And so, you know, with this book, part of what we're trying to say is we have to acknowledge that those shared assumptions don't exist. And if our starting point is bringing everyone to a common assumption versus acknowledging there's multiple assumptions in the room and co-constructing something, that's, I think, a radical realignment of how leadership education unfolds.
0: Mm. yeah yeah I think that that's right I mean I don't think that there's a I don't think that there's a a, an easy answer there and I think honestly the the conversations about power and authority in your book make uh, make that seem like even more of a challenge you know because even in co-creation situations it's hard to hard to figure out who's initiating things who holds the resources in a situation who's in charge of the outcome you know all those things are still are still so real and I think it's you know, I think part of it, you know, I think part of getting over this hurdle is just a, you know, it's just a relational process that takes, you know, that takes a long time and gets to a place where people, you know, understand one another, the sort of purity of one another's intentions.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, there's the dialogic compo- component of it and the relational component. And I think, you know, it just goes back to a, a fundamental reframing. Are we teaching people potential solutions or potential competencies and that's it as it relates to leadership? Are we teaching people how to think? And that then alters the way that this work is done to begin with. And I've played the role of uh, you know, regurgitator-in-chief as an academic and as a, um, you know, educator when I was in uh, an administrative role. Where it was legitimately, here's the toolkits I'm giving you to go out and and resolve issues or all you need is this knowledge here. And it's taken me a while, uh, and I'm still, I think, learning into the discomfort of creating spaces where people are going to leave with some resources but likely more questions than answers. And when you shift to that, I think that is a part of the breaking down of assumptions and you know approaching this as a from a critical learning perspective, but you have to let go of your own power in the room while simultaneously helping the people you're working with to be comfortable with ambiguity and mm-hmm. and that's tough mhm yeah,
0: so I wondered uh talk a little bit there about um about critical thinking, and it does feel to me in, in reading the book that one thing that you hope that folks will walk away with is. You know is uh, is a real is a real toolbox of critical thinking. So how do you think that critical social theory
1: reframes
0: critical thinking?
1: Yeah, so I, I love this question, miles, because I think this is one of those things that, as a takeaway from the book, my hope is people leave with this understanding in our shared work around leadership education. So critical thinking is a competency. It's a capacity. It's it's something someone builds sort of the muscle memory to do. It's how you think about the interrelationship of ideas. It's how you reflect on your own experience. But I think what gets misunderstood is because there's that, you know, this plays beautifully off your first question. One person might look at critical thinking and say, oh, the word critical is there, and my understanding or assumption about critical is critical social theory. And someone else looks and says critical, well, it's critique. It means being able to identify the strengths and weaknesses of something. And the two are wildly different. So to me, critical thinking is being able to take a leadership theory or engage in a leadership process and think, what are the strengths? What are the weaknesses? How do I fit in this? And then address them the critical social thinking aspect automatically layers power on top of that. And it Mm -hmm. layers identity on top of it. And so you're not just thinking about strengths and weaknesses. You're thinking about how does this replicate a particular power structure. You're thinking about your own positionality within that power structure, within the dynamic. And that's just altogether a different way of approaching this work. And I'm not sure that's something that – is well-articulated in our educational processes around leadership development, largely because we haven't done a lot with critical social theory. But moving forward, my hope is that people really understand and see the difference that if we just do critical thinking alone, we never actually get to the work around critical social theory. Or if we do, it's by chance, not by purpose. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I
0: I think that it also you know even even putting even rethinking you know e- even rethinking the phrase critical thinking gets us to a place where we're not thinking about critical thinking as being synonymous with problem solving yep. right which i think is a you know if you think about that you know if you think critically about the word critical and what it means in that situation i think that that is even a you know is even a really is even a really wonderful step outside of uh, you know, outside of critical social theory, which I think is a uh, is a win unto itself.
1: So. One of my students, when we were doing sort of the last set of revisions of the book, really Corey um, pointed out, and I thought it was an astute observation, was that I was using the word critical through the book when I would say something was important, and he said, so you have critical thinking, you have critical social theory, which is, or critical perspectives, which is your sort of critical social theory version of critical thinking. And then you're saying things are critical. And at some point people are going to get wildly confused because there's just not, I think, and he, you know, his articulation that there was, was that we don't have an educative process that lead people to understand the differences between these three things. And so we went out and stripped any anytime the word critical was used, unless it was critical thinking or, um like a critical perspective applied to something. And I would actually extend this to this to the same idea around self-awareness. So we talk about self-awareness, and then we talk about critical self-reflection. And some folks have said, well, what's the difference between self-awareness and critical self-reflection? And I'm like, the latter is really about positionality. And so self-awareness doesn't necessarily mean that you're understanding yourself in broader power structures. But critical self-reflection necessitates that. And so I think as we prepare folks to go out into the world of work and into their communities, we do them a disservice if we're teaching them to identify strengths or weaknesses but not nest those in these broader power structures. So if someone's going out and they want to build, let's say, a more cohesive, um, healthy work environment for the people on their team, if we're talking critical thinking, they may go in and quickly do um, a pro-con asset uh, deficit analysis and determine that the course of action is really about changing these three quick things. If they do a critical perspective analysis, they're going to understand how those assets and deficits may or may not be a function of individuals but the system itself, and that changes the way that people then might engage in redressing the issue. So I think it's such an important distinction and one that I'm still trying to figure out as I do my work how to make clear to people, but also how to get people thinking about what that looks like in practice
0: hmm. the English language what a complicated thing
1: right
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a what a good note what a good note from uh from Corey is that what you said?
1: Yeah, Corey Winchester brought that up, and um, he's an educator at Evanston Township High School, who I've worked with for a number of years, who's just brilliant at thinking about critical social perspectives. Mm. Isn't it nice to have
0: people who are honest in your life? That's an important thing. Um, So I wanted to – so we had sort of joked on the the first uh, part of this series about – uh, about you just being uh, just really over the, the conversation about whether uh, leaders are born or not. And I wanted to circle back to that for just a second because I wanted to uh, not, not discuss whether that is true or not, but discuss whether <laughs> whether, we, whether leaders being born is the dominant stock of knowledge. And if that is the case, how does that, how does that
1: conclusion change the way that we teach leadership? Yeah, hey, I think that that's a powerful question and one that gets at the heart of why even take this approach to begin with in some ways. So, mm. I think, you know, let's approach this from a critical hope perspective versus a uh, a naive hope perspective and then let's let's bracket this off and just talk about the United States because the stocks of knowledge in other countries would would look potentially different. But here in the United States, I think the dominant stock of knowledge is most certainly that leaders are born. Um, I I think you see this if you go on, uh, I had some students do an exercise for a number of years as part of the leadership class where they would walk around campus or they would walk around the city and they would ask people to define leadership. And almost to a person, people would come back and say, I asked the question, what does leadership mean to you? And the response from the people they spoke with was a leader is. So there's this defaulting from you ask about leadership as a process, but the dominant stock of knowledge is so powerful that they don't hear leadership, they hear leader. And then they begin to describe either someone that they worked for or saw and admire. Um, They start talking about characteristics of a person um, that are largely trait-based. And so is defaulting to uh, a leader by characteristic I think certainly is um, potential evidence that the dominant topic of knowledge is that leaders are born. Um, I think you see that also in the way that we in the, the academic literature see the resurfacing of great man theories over and over and over again. That tells us something. And I think you know we operate largely from informal theories if we haven't been exposed to um, Alternatives and those those theories oftentimes replicate either implicitly or explicitly this concept of leaders being born. Um, so for me, yes, I think that's absolutely the the starting point for for most folks. I, that was certainly my starting point um, developmentally. If you if I think back to how I was um, earlier in my life and and my conceptions of what leadership was and who a leader is, and so I think that that necessitates that we figure out how to disrupt those informal stocks of knowledge, those informal assumptions around, you know, what is leadership? Um, I would say from a programmatic standpoint, many of us want to jump right in, myself included, to let's talk about the social change model. Let's talk about strategic social change. Let's talk about these ways in which social justice is infused in this work, how to change the world, how to intervene on the status quo. But when the status quo is shaping this dominant understanding of, of leaders as born and you don't intervene on that first, then I think it makes it even harder to get to a point to understand um, social change. So you know, that's where I think you see people who are doing great social change work but doing it from uh, a lens of if that person leaves an organization – the organization might fall apart because how they're even structuring this important work is from this dominant model of I am the work, I am the leader. Mm-hmm. I think the important question to ask, Miles, too, for me is who benefits from that dominant stock of knowledge? So if, if the assumption that leaders are born is the dominant, often subconscious, understanding of leadership. Who benefits from that? And to me, the answer is the system, because then if leaders are born, who am I to challenge or disrupt or conceive of alternative possible futures? So I think that piece of it's really important, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's – no, go ahead, sir.
1: I was going to ask, I mean, where do you sort of sit with the question you posed? Um. I agree with you that it is the dominant stock of knowledge
0: and I think that I think that we have gotten to a place where we I think it actually refers back to that first question, right? And and it's obviously less important than the observation that Rob Robert Putnam and his respondents were talking about there related to your then wasn't my then and your now isn't even my thou or this assumption of shared understanding and I just I think that we need to be aware as people facilitating programs with with students at all levels that our students have a different idea about what it is to be a leader when they walk into when they walk into our conversation. And that could be affirming to some folks and it is probably it is probably something that is that is hard and makes people opt out of leadership. And I think it could in some ways be the answer to the question that I often ask on this podcast, which is, you know, when something's gone wrong with a leadership program on our college campus, what has happened? I think it could be that people are not addressing the fact that people believe the leaders are, that people believe leaders are born. They're jumping into this next step of leadership as a process, and there's this there's this dissonance that, like, is, that is built in, and there isn't a conversation that happens where where, you know, things like Uh, Things like the story most often told is broken down for people at the very beginning of a process to help people understand that, you know, to help people understand that uh, backgrounds and identities and, uh, you know, and, um, uh, you know, the economic process is really built into, uh, you know, who, who has the opportunity to lead in the story most often told.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that is on, I think, us as educators, myself included, is that starting from that base position sometimes doesn't feel like the most stimulating environment for us. Um, Mm. You know, it feels like maybe we've already been there, and we don't recognize it's good for us to continue revisiting it, but because it's not the most sexy thing to do with a program, um, we want to jump into the deep end of the ocean without recognizing that, Yes, it's not new and fresh for us, but this may be an important developmental starting point that moving beyond necessitates a whole lot of attention, um, even though it doesn't feel as complex as where we want to be ourselves.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, I think that that transitions nicely to my next question. So we discussed before and in and, and, uh, my conversation with Julio, and it came up as well, that many student leadership practitioners move into their roles without enough preparation. Um, I know this is certainly true to my experience, and I, and I really think that that's understandable. I think that the breadth and the depth of leadership theory is formidable, and all you need to do is, is read your book to understand that the, that the world of leadership theory is a, is a very, very deep pool. And so um, regardless, to circle back, uh, I think that folks do move in without enough training, and i guess my my question is do you think that the knowledge deficit that folks have and maybe a resulting lack of confidence inhibits the embrace of limit testing ideas like critical social social theory into you know your your average co-curricular program on a on a
1: college campus yeah absolutely i mean i think you know we've talked before about tensions and i think one of the tensions that exists in graduate preparation programs in higher ed that we haven't talked about is preparation for training and development and education around leadership. So the tension for me is we are an applied field, and yet there's also theoretical knowledge. And so the tension plays out with hiring agents often wanting people who can do the job on day one and mm-hmm. can jump into to the delivery of the, the pragmatics. Um, with the developmental pieces being somewhere in the background informing that practice. And so I think sometimes you know in, in the history of an evolution of our field the leadership piece wasn't about student leadership development, it was about someone taking on managerial roles. So I think even back you know to when I was in my master's program in 1999 I was lucky enough to, to learn from Susan Combs in a dedicated class around leadership that was about leadership theory, but that was pretty unique. Um, and it was an elective to the program. The primary learning about leadership, if you didn't take that elective, was in a sort of capstone class that looked at change management. It looked at how you supervise, what what do you do in an organization to create teams. But all of it was largely leader as position, and managerial. And I think that's oftentimes what people are exposed to in their their professionalization process. And I think that makes sense because we are an applied profession. And so it's not on the developmental approach to education. So I think what then happens is people go into the field and the hope is that they can transfer that knowledge. Now, here's what would be interesting to me, Miles. The, the reality is, we cannot train on every topic. You can't have a class on every topic that someone may need to do, work around, and have competency and knowledge in going into the field. But if we shifted to this critical learning perspective, and someone learned that in an organ Gov class, let's say, not in a leadership class, that mental model of learning could easily be, I think, more easily be transferred than in into leadership education. So someone would come in asking questions about stocks of knowledge and and as I get into the literature, what does it look like? And um, as I get ready to deliver programs, what might I be thinking about? That changes fundamentally how someone approaches. So, you know, I wish every program had a leadership course and that that leadership course wasn't just on management um, or positional leadership or, you know, serving in a positional leader role, but was really about the study of leadership as a process and the formal literature, that's not the case. Um, I think we can address that, though, by infusing these critical learning perspectives across our curriculum. And then I think that then just fundamentally changes. Someone can then go to a leadership educator's inter, uh, you know, experience or the International Leadership Association or any number of professional de- development opportunities and they can more critically consume what's presented to them, seek out the knowledge they need to disrupt the story most often told. But that's harder to get to on one's own if you haven't been introduced to it across any platform in in an experience. So that's more of a meta answer to your question, I think. Um, What are your thoughts? Well, I think –
0: I think that I have found, uh, and I think a lot of folks – well, let me ask my next question, and I, and I think – so part of my thought is, is built into the next, to that next question, so I'd like – I can probably expound after I ask that. So um, cool. I want to share a couple of quotes from page 30. Um, so these are, these are some John Dugan originals, folks. Uh, if critical learning is necessary, aren't these perhaps the wrong theories to be studying? In that sense, you're referencing some uh, some student pushback. I think that you've gotten from sort of deconstructing theory and, and mm-hmm. people being frustrated and not thinking that theory is perfect. And so then you continue. I wonder though, is theory being situ- situated as authoritative? The reality though is that theory is not some intractable trust, but one of many potentialities, mutable in essence and born of imperfect understandings of an imperfect world. So, across the field, do you think that we situate theories as authoritative? And, for instance, don't we often measure confidence in our,
1: say, student leadership practitioners via theoretical knowledge? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the the push of the book, right? So, um, again, you could transplant this and make this a book on student development theory, or a book on organizational theory, and really the same premises hold as applied to different bodies of literature, which is in this search for answers, in the search for competence, we tend to reify certain bodies of literature, whether they're theories, whether they're models, whether they're taxonomies, as some type of litmus test of what it means to be a professional in a field. So think, let's mm-hmm. think about like, student development theory. Um, there was a time when someone just name-dropping, Perry, and Chickering would immediately elit- elicit some form of credibility. Um, mm-hmm. Now someone might, if they drop that, it actually might push to cause like, someone to wonder, well, did they actually really know student development theory or did they know old school student development theory, right? So even over time, what is legitimate or credible changes. And so I think with those quotes and and your last question, I think absolutely we position things as authoritative in a complex world. And in order for us to sort of let go of that, we have to admit to our own fallibility, the messiness. I mean so this is like a super I had a student this year who was like, so you realize you say you don't like postmodernism, but then you're like Super postmodern, right? And I was like, "Oh, I think maybe I might have postmodern perspectives in me after all, because this this uh, this lack of comfort with uh, messiness and the need for a truth to be established. Most certainly, I think contributes to the positioning of leadership as authoritative, and then subsequently." we teach a theory to a student, or we introduce a set of competencies that are tied to some prototype of what a leader should look like or how leadership processes should unfold. So my answer is yes, and I think you use a good example. So um, you know, people still conflate competence and efficacy, but there's bodies of literature on both. And certainly we then automatically sort of say this has to be what this means in terms of how we deliver education? So my answer is absolutely yes. I think that um, we default to, to that. But I also want to sort of normalize that and say, I don't think that's because we lack the capacity to do otherwise. I don't think it's because we are um, malfeasant in our our own education or our, our engagement with, with students and what we design and deliver. I think it's human. I think it is absolutely human and something that has to be untrained because we, we come into this with years and years and years of socialization to position what we learn in educational systems as authoritative, that this is truth, that this is the answer, that here's the set of, of tools you need to be successful. So I'm on a little bit of a soapbox now, but <laughs> I think what it boils down to is just about any student who came out of my, one of my classes would tell you that they come out feeling less sure than when they came in, but they also feel more comfortable with that uncertainty than they ever expected they could, and I think that's a really, really good thing because it introduces this ability to to see imperfection and to sit with it versus trying to fix it. Mm. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a complicated thing, and I think that um, I, I think about this. I think about this stuff a lot um, related to, you know, I think about this related to assessments, you know, for whether it's Myers-Briggs, whether it's strengths, uh, you know, I think about it related to, there's just this push for folks to have, and maybe it's just because it's easier. Maybe it's because the folks doing the hiring, you know, sort of rely on their, uh, rely on their student leadership practitioners to be the content expert because it is, because the pool is so deep. That they say, you know, that folks who are doing the hiring assume that if you've got, you know, some sort of certification, or that you have, you know, that you're really able to press someone on some theoretical information. That and and you know, and who knows whether that theoretical information, you know, maybe you as the hiring manager really really believe in servant leadership, and you really press someone on servant leadership, and they don't know about that particular theory, but they could give you a ton of information on social change or relational leadership or, uh, you know, or strategic social change or any number of, any number of options, uh, but they just don't happen to know that one, you know, and people assume that that's some sort of, you know, some sort of uh, glaring flaw, but they don't, it's just, it's just hard to evaluate, right? It's hard to know. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, Well, let me share a little anecdote here that I think might be, be helpful. So when I was about 24, 25 years old, I started my career postmasters at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And after my first year, there was some organizational transitions, and there was the need to bring someone in pretty quickly to a uh, role. And a former student body president from prior to when I had been there, maybe two years or so, was looking for a for change, had been in education, K-12 ed, and was brought on into a professional position. And her name is Jennifer Peck-Latin, so I'm giving a shout out to, to Jen now. She is in K-12 ed now, and a brilliant educator, Miles. brilliant. So when she was first hired, my gut instinct was, hello, she doesn't have a master's in higher ed. How is she going to do this job? Um, She doesn't have the competencies, and now we're going to have to back in all of this work. That was all of my, pardon my language, bullshit. That was my bias, my prototype, my essentializing of knowledge, as authoritative around... What it looked like to be a student affairs professional. Jen comes in, one of the most brilliant, talented educators I've ever met, and she immediately had this critical learning perspective. So I don't know where Jen got that, but she asked questions in powerful ways. She was voracious in her consumption of knowledge in terms of understanding a field she was stepping into. She created environments where students were okay with having someone um, challenge what they're thinking, doing so in this really humanistic way. So all of the things that I think I write about in the book, Jen was doing. She Mm. didn't have the language for it. I didn't have the language for it. But what became very clear was she didn't need a master's in higher ed. I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. She didn't need a master's in higher ed to do this job. What Mm. she needed was a mode of learning that translated in an ability to create environments. So she'd never read about uh, community service learning. She had never read about leadership theories, but her ability to get into it because of how she approached it, and that, you know, allowed her to do that then. And so my biases came into play around saying, well, she doesn't have the adequate competencies for this, and they were totally wrong. And so you know, again, this goes back to how do we shift? approach to education around critical learning versus consumption alone. And I think that, you know, do I wish every person had a leadership theories and leadership development course coming out of higher ed masters and doc programs? Absolutely. I'd rather them have some type of exposure to critical learning than the direct content if there was a, a choice there, simply because that critical learning will give someone advantage in how they make meaning and engage in whatever the type of work is. And look, I mean, none of us, you know, I I feel like I I have a very privileged um, set of experiences related to leadership development. I got to study with Susan while I was there. These fabulous people like Julie Owen and John Garland and Wendy Wagner and Laura Osteen and Tom Seeger and Renaud Hall are all there. And so the conversations, all of that was super, super developmentally important for me. But if you strip all of that away, the reality is what they taught me was this learning mode. And I still had to learn new theories. There were theories that appear in this book that were never covered in my educational experience, but I feel like I had the ability to get into them because of how Susan trained so many of us around thinking about the issues. And so um, I know this is a very long way around answering your question, but I think, you know, there is no prototype for who can do this work, but I think there should be some general assumptions about how they approach learning uh, to begin with. Mm. Yeah,
0: yeah, well, and that's, uh, you know, for folks who are looking to to find people, that's the, you know, that gets back to the, that's the hard thing to measure, right?
1: It's really hard
0: to, harder to tell in an interview or when you're reviewing an application, whether someone is capable of critical, critical thinking. Um, I'm a, I'm a big well, believer. My, my secret as a, as a hiring manager is that I'm a really big believer and there's a market inefficiency in the field in, uh, folks who are applying for jobs. that's not in their direct experience. Uh, Cause I think you think you get folks who are curious and interested and you hire someone you really believe in and you don't, Worries much about whether they've done this like one exact thing, uh, you know, already. So.
1: Absolutely, and that, I think that goes into. So anyone who's listening out there who's thinking, "I would love to be in an office that does leadership development," and maybe this person is in orientation now, or they're in residential life or student activities in general, or it's someone who is in corporate America looking for a job transition. If there's worry about transference of skill sets, um, or I have to go to a program where I'm going to learn this. No program is going to prepare someone adequately adequately or fully, let's say, to do this work. Some of it will have to happen on their own, and and I love what you just said. I, I wish that more hiring agents would look broadly at what someone comes in with just because someone can you know do the myers briggs assessment and is a great facilitator of you know brainstorming opportunities or teaches the social change model really well doesn't mean they understand dominant systems, power. I would say you know the ability, do they have the ability to explore how power flows through all of this doesn't mean they know how to consume um, and and learn the mass amounts of information that come out every week and those are the things that i think we should be looking for um the number of times i get emails or phone calls saying who do you have graduating who do you have coming out of your program that wants to go into leadership education and i'll give names of people with experiences particularly when they're looking for like a director level Um, and they're like well they're not that person isn't doing leadership right now they're in multicultural affairs Uh, and i have to pause and say and how they think is absolutely transferable and what they know is transferable. So we've got to sort of, I think, bust this prototype of what, you know, in all of the stocks of knowledge that go into it and implicit bias that go into who a leadership educator is to begin with. I think Julie's work begins to do that quite a bit, which I'm appreciative of. Hmm. All right,
0: John, well, I have uh, kind of a personal question for you that isn't directly related to student leadership programs, but I, I think it's important um, as we sort of transition out of our, our conversation about your book. Uh, this book isn't prescriptive. There, isn't, there is not theres no heuristic. You could have prescribed a set of ideas and followed similar personal values. You This could have ended with something like the critical social theory of student leadership, and I think you know those things about the book and believe and, and believed that it would make it less popular in sales. So how did you avoid the temptation to be prescriptive, to provide a heuristic, to provide, a, you know, a clean answer of if you do these four things, then you're going to develop student leaders? How did you, how did you avoid that
1: temptation in writing this book? <laughs> that temptation was super easy for me because it scared the hell out of me. <laughs> so the idea that I would posit, like, Dugan's model of leadership was, like, something that would cause me to completely freeze and so i I just that wasn't even an option to begin with for me to be honest because it was so immobilizing and thinking about you know what would that look like what what is And and it was antithetical to the purpose of the book. The whole purpose was on finding ways to become a a critical learner. And there's certainly plenty of information for me to play with without having to to post a new one, a new theory or a new model. And a lot of this goes back to to the beginning of the book. So um, I got pushback on early feedback from external reviewers around why don't you have your definition or your model up front. and I essentially do it's just a little more hidden than I think people see, so there is a line in the first chapter that that sort of culminates an exploration of you know what are the major components of any leadership theory, and it says that leadership is the sense that we make of it mm-hmm. and for me, that is my theory or model that is my sort of truth if I was going to put a truth out there, and that's that. How you know goes all the way back to your first question. How someone comes to understand leadership is there truth in that moment for them, and so leadership is the sense that someone makes of it. And our responsibility is then to bring those and elicit those into a room to play with them to see how each individual sense someone makes contributes to a greater whole, challenges assumptions, um, reinforces assumptions, so on and so forth. So for me, you know, it's one part. I didn't want to contribute yet another sort of definition another model when we have enough already out there. And one part is, if we're really going – part of it is just trying to live the truth of the book and say, if I'm saying that it's the sense we make of it, I probably don't need to add more. Um, You know, and then I was also terrified, so (laughs) I (laughs) didn't feel the need to do that. Um, I think the critical perspectives and saying here's four tools of – deconstruction and four tools of reconstruction was hard enough because those four or those eight collective tools are not encompassing of all potential tools. And so even just doing that feels like it can be limiting. And the goal of the book was to expand people's meaning-making process, not constrain it. And so for me, to present any model would have been more in that realm of constraint. Hmm.
0: It's interesting identifying leadership as the sense that we make of it as being that a, that essential thing. If I was a if I was a different kind of person who wanted to troll you, I would uh, just you know promote that on social media that that's the Dugan theory of leadership and just get that going.
1: But yeah, please do not
0: do that. <laughs> regardless, outside of outside of my teasing, I do think you know I said something recently where again you know that this could be you know a potential solution to this you know when leadership uh, when leadership has seemingly gone wrong, you know, what has happened. And I think that some of that question could be, you know, some of the answer could be that you don't, you know, people don't recognize the fact that leadership is everything to everyone. And that's what drives people crazy about leadership sometimes is because it is born out of, you know, it is totally born out of, uh, you know, uh, uh, an assumption of shared understanding, but it's born out of, lived experiences and different conceptualizations, mm-hmm. you know, it, it is an entirely personal process. And so, you know, if we can understand that, if we can understand that literally every person that walks into a classroom or into a, you know, a space on campus or, you know, whatever the case may be, whoever's walking in there is walking in with a unique idea about what leadership is, about their relationship to that idea, and about their potential as a leader, you know, their ability to, again, to get back to chapter one, or maybe this is in the preface, their ability to turn inward, you
1: know. Um, Well, and this ties back, Miles, to exactly, you know, I think in your question and the response you just gave, you just answered the earlier question better than I could have around the difference between critical thinking and critical perspective taking. So, If leadership is the sense we make of it, and we engage solely in critical thinking, we are just reinforcing dominant norms. We're positioning certain things as truth, or we're like bumper cars bumping into one another constantly, saying, leadership is this, no, it's this. And we may find like-minded groups of people that espouse similar values, and we stay nested in these sort of silos of understanding. If If leadership is the sense we make of it, and we adopt critical perspectives, then we 're trying to understand well, how did you come to this understanding what what identities dimensions in, inform that? what experiences you had informed that? How does power even in, like, even inform the way in which you and I can dialogue about the fact that we have different understandings and so you know if leadership is the sense we make of it, then it, it makes the adoption of critical perspectives all the more important if we want to disrupt and envision some potentially different future for this work of leadership education. Mm. All right,
0: John, I wanted to, wanted to end on this. Um, this, uh, as we sort of turn towards reflection here, this book was one of the, uh, the most uncomplicated endeavors of your adult and probably any life. Uh, and I know it means a great deal to you, so what do you hope that people will remember about leadership theory cultivating
1: critical perspectives 10 years from now?
0: Um,
1: Okay, so... my husband's joke, uh, because he's very good at keeping me, I think, in check, was like, you've written, he was so supportive about this book. I mean, I couldn't have asked for a more supportive partner because this, I learned in the process that I, I much prefer writing research articles than books. Books are much harder for me to write. And uh, he said, you know, years from now, John, this is going to be one of the most beautiful, um, you know, books on someone's shelf that they haven't read. Where he said, This is gonna be such an off awesome, like awesome like book in a resale bin somewhere Or <laughs> was like, What? And he kept have, coming up with all of these like awful like um it's just mm-hmm. going to sit around somewhere. But his purpose of it was saying, don't take it too seriously, right? He's saying, this is just something you're putting down. Let go of your own sort of ego around making something that is I'm um, gonna change the world. Like, just put some ideas together, get it out there. People are gonna agree. People are gonna disagree. Uh, and I keep going back to that. So like, we'll, we'll constantly go back and forth and be like, you know what? This book would be great for is if like you had a chair and it was imbalanced, you could like slide it under to rebalance it. And so we keep <laughs> doing that, coming up with innovative ways to use the book that have nothing to do with the content. Um, but it, in all seriousness. Um, let me share like maybe two things here. First and foremost is I hope it is completely outdated down the road. So in my if my wildest dreams came true, it would be that this stimulated a line of thinking. And 10 years from now, people are looking at this book as like a historical footnote of, I can't believe people thought about leadership in that way. That would be ideal for me because that would have meant hopefully – people were really leaning into this leadership is the sense we make of it, disruption of the dominant story, or the story most often told, engaging with critical perspectives. So, I mean, very sincerely, if it's outdated in 10 years, I feel like hopefully then it served its purpose. And then the, you know, the second piece that is probably the more heartfelt one is, um, I was incredibly grateful for you, for you to, to sort of create the space for people who were in the research study, so the counter-narratives. And um, the folks who were in our study are wildly successful, but for me, they're points of an inspiration. And they don't need their voices amplified by me, but any amplification of their voices is um, – I'm getting a little uh, emotional here, I'm sorry – Is um, would be the greatest gift because when I think of folks like Georgie Torres Reyes, um, Felicia Garorno, um Mary Morton, all of these folks who are in the book, they have been inspirations for me. So to get their stories out there, and I think of if I had, you know, as a white cisgender gay man, if I had Art Johnson's story when I was 16, 18, 20, even 30 years old, to see what he's achieved in his life, the way he's created change, it would have altered my sense of efficacy, purpose, motivation. So I'm just so incredibly grateful to them. And I don't think there's any way I can ever repay them. But if 10 years from now, the book has brought you know, attention to the work they've done and inspired others uh, to do similar work, then that is more than I could have ever asked for. Okay, great. Well, what a
0: wonderful note to end on. So thanks to everyone for joining us for the National Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program College Community. And thanks so much to Dr. John Dugan. This has been such a fun, fun adventure, and I'm just so grateful for your time. And as I've noted on many occasions, uh, so grateful for the book and for the work um, and it will uh, it will uh, rest on my shelf, uh, well read and and highlighted, and written written through multiple times. So um, and then and ten I,
1: years I, from now, you can use it to prop off a, co- a coffee table, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it sounds like I mean, John. That's a it's a pretty thick book. That would be a pretty janky
1: coffee table. Is all that I mean. I'm it would saying. have, it, like would have really, point, it would have been screwed up. Yeah, maybe. Oh, I know. I know. Like an air conditioning window unit, it could be really good for that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> good, 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 All right. So you can you can connect with John on Twitter at John Dugan77 and Leadership Theory Cultivating Critical perspectives is available out there on in the internet. So you can also get more information about the knowledge community on our various social media outlets, including Facebook.com, backslash essay lead on Twitter at NASA SLPKC and on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can also connect with me on Twitter at miles, which is M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, which is S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your program. So please shoot an email to nasktheleaderpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, John. Thank you, Miles.